Elliot Brendan. Welcome to the World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At the World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Friday. You know what? I I meant to say I'm better than you think. I've been meaning to do that all week, and I keep blowing that line. So, can we do that again? How are you, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm better than you think, Phil. How about you? No, I was going to yeah, get us there. Oh, I stole it. I just stole. You, you <laughs> stepped on my lines. That's okay. We're both doing better than you think and uh, super fantastic on top of that. It's been a fun week talking about why the world is still better than you think. New evidence for abundance from our friend Peter Diamandis. We've been working through various topics on Monday. We talked about the global financial situation, how economic evidence for things getting better. Wednesday, we talked about how the health field, medicine, is showing all kinds of very promising developments for things getting better. And tonight we're going to wrap it up. We're going to sum up environment, energy, and food all together. And part of the reason for doing that is we've already talked a little bit about both environment and energy. So the only really net new topic is food. There's a big connection, it turns out, between energy and the economy, as we touched on on the show on Monday. And we'll come back to that just a little bit this evening. So we've, we've sort of hit that one and we'll, we'll hit it again with a, with a few new things. But before we do any of that, this is how fast the world's getting better, right? We've already got an update from Wednesday's show. Tell us about that, Stephen. Well, a polio is to be eradicated this year. Uh, it's, it's thought. It's thought that the last wild cases of polio could see the last of it uh, as of this year. And uh, that's a uh, you know two two years ago Bill Gates predicted that it would be you know the fight would be over by about 2020, uh, so we're a couple of years ahead of that now. And the doctor here that's the, the expert is Dr. Winger, and uh, uh, states that there's only 12 known cases uh, of wild polio virus in existence today, and it's occurring in just two countries, Af- uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, you know two adjacent co- countries there. Right. And uh, and they, but they've had a unprecedented unprecedented progress, and it's and so um, it's immunization efforts that are coming uh, that are bearing fruit. Um, they are able to orally vaccinate uh, 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 children in these last remaining areas, and we can get it. St- uh, you know, the thought is if we can get it stomped completely out completely, it'd be much like smallpox was a generation ago. Well, that will be fantastic. I wonder if that, when they say Afghanistan and Pakistan, it's that kind of no man's land, that region where, I mean, Afghanistan is kind of its own not terribly developed place anyway, although we'll come back to how much more developed it is today than it was a few years ago. But there's this big frontier in Pakistan that just sort of merges with Afghanistan. Yeah, there's like a a mountainous region that divides Pakistan and on the, you know, north uh, the northwest side of that mountainous region, it's really more akin to Afghanistan than it right. is the rest of Pakistan. Uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, that, that region. And I, I suspect that uh, the problem would be in these isolated areas like that, more, yep. more than the more developed part of Pakistan to the southeast. So 
Yeah, I, I I I don't have any basis for that in the article, Phil, but I, I tend to agree with. I just that, wonder, that you know, because sense. the two countries yeah, that are right sense. next to each other, and I know they kind of share that that one sort of open wild area. So I wondered if that's where yeah. it was. And interesting. So Peter really should have called Bill Gates, I guess, and got a you know quick update before he published his article. Cause <laughs> you this know, it's something we have happen. not mentioned all week, Phil. We didn't mention this all week that uh, this article that we've been going over the entire week is itself a sequel to Peter Diamantis' book called Abundance. And so he's, point. He's, saying, he's saying, yeah, you know, there's more to talk about now, and that book is only a couple of years old. But. Well, not only is it a sequel, he does these every now and then, and, and we've yeah, picked up yeah. on these before. So this is umpteenth in a series, actually, of those. So, right. yeah, it definitely follow it's the a, link. It's a never-ending book. He's just rolling out, right? I mean, he, he, yeah, he can add each of these articles as an appendix. To the, yeah, follow the link, go to his blog, and, and you can trace them all back. And if you haven't read Abundance, read Abundance, because it's fantastic. It's a book full of the kinds of stuff we've been talking about all this week. But I think it, what Peter considers to be important is to just kind of keep checking in and refreshing the information. He says, well, just right. in case you weren't convinced, the world is, I, I like that he puts it in print, still better than you think. And here's additional reasons to think so. So let's talk about the environment. This is a really interesting one. The global annual death rate from natural disasters has plummeted over the past century. And he gets into the reasons for that. He talks about the fact that we're just, we've got much more solid infrastructure than we used to have. We're much better at tracking these things than we used to be. We're much better at communicating than we used to be. And so the world has not, the number of natural disasters occurring in the world has not diminished. It hasn't gone down. They're still occurring. They're occurring at the same rate. But people aren't dying in them the way they used to, which is really quite amazing when you think about it. I think there's a shift in expectation too, Phil. I mean, uh, you know, when I was a, a young kid and a, some natural disaster would hit, some famine, there was sort of a passivity among your average American about that sort of thing. It's, right. Uh, it, it was, it, well, you know, these things are going to happen. You know, right. I mean, you, per, periodically, you know, uh, a quarter of the Congo will starve, and that's just right. the way it's going to be. When something like this begins to happen now, there's some, there's, there's, like, uh, there's like this idea that, okay, somebody dropped the ball. What's going on? What's the problem here? You know, that, that's the attitude now. And I, I think that's a refreshing change, right? I mean, that, uh, that there's an expectation that this shouldn't be allowed to happen. To, you know, right. and there's obviously some exceptions to that. I mean, particularly when it comes to things like, uh, you know, people, genocide and warfare and things like that, there, there's still terrible cases of that uh, taking place. But when it sure. comes to, th you know, because there's a reluctance to get involved in, in war, right? I mean, send our, send our troops into battle. But when it comes to other things like, uh, you know, famine and stuff like that, there are the Ebola virus or, you know, from a couple of years ago, there is an expectation that we step in and, and do all we can do to help and stop it. Absolutely. And, right. and that's, and that's good. That's, that's got to, you know, that's, it seems a, a positive development and part, and probably part of this, you know, because we have ways of tracking it, then we should. And there's that expectation. Absolutely. Well, another example that Peter gives is the use of drones in protecting our natural areas. This, is, this was really interesting to me, and you should read this. We don't have time to get into it into any great detail, but just to say that drones are going to be p playing a bigger and bigger role in how we look after 
the environment in the years to come. And he gives a couple of great examples about how drones can be used to track and monitor and help prevent deforestation and how drones can be used to track different species of animals to give us a better idea of how large of a population exists, how much it's changing. A lot of things that are very hard for humans to track are going to be pretty easy for drones to track, and we will have a much better idea of what's going on with these populations. And he talks about combining data that we're getting from drones with machine learning and getting a much more fluid and active, and you can't emphasize this enough, accurate picture of what's actually happening out there. So we're going to have much better data to work from. And he actually describes a really interesting model of using machine learning and drones to, I think, protect wild areas in a way that we just haven't been able to up to this point. It's pretty exciting stuff. Well, and, you know, a properly programmed drone uh, could, you know, produce thousands and thousands of hours of video, most of which would not require human's attention because nothing important is happening, right? Right. That's where uh, the machine learning comes in. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But here, you know, here is, here is uh, you know, somebody that's uh, dumping stuff into this, you know, uh, a park that doesn't, you know, and, uh, and, and or here's somebody that's poaching. And, you know, the machine learning uh, can point to these things and, uh, and, and help us deal with it, right? So Absolutely. Cool. Good stuff. And then the example that, mm-hmm. that we gave, we talked a while back on a show about the Billion Oyster Project. I thought this was really cool. It's a long-term, large-scale plan to restore a billion live oysters to New York Harbor over the next 20 years and train thousands of young people in New York to care for their marine environments. So it's this wonderful kind of open-ended project to restore this oyster habitat that used to exist in New York Harbor and also just kind of improve that environment. So you, you think about a place that we don't even think of as being a home to wildlife, right? New York Harbor. You would, I, I would think of that as right. one of the deadest bodies of water in the world. Well, it didn't used to be, and it doesn't have to be. And the plan here is to bring some very important life back to it, which, by the way, as I recall from that episode, one of the best ways to clean water is to have oysters living there. So it turns out this would, right. this would be a tremendous way to keep the harbor even cleaner, as they've been working living on doing filters, over Living filters, right? I mean, that's what they do. And so that, that, that's cool. right. They're, living filters for the water. So that, that's, all, that's all pretty cool stuff. And the environment is looking a lot better. But again, if you want more examples, we urge you to go back and read Abundance by Peter Diamandis. Okay, let's move on. What, what's happening in energy? Well, uh, I, let's give some of uh, Peter's examples from the article. Uh, more people around the world have access to electricity than ever before. And the absolute number of those without access to elect- electricity is dropping despite population growth. So uh, the populations are growing, and yet the number of people without electricity is, is dropping lower and lower. And uh, as we kind of... Not just the percentage, the absolute number. Yeah. You know, that's, that's amazing. Right. Yeah. That, is, uh, that is very encouraging. And electricity is just one of those things, Phil, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a gateway tech uh, to everything else. If you don't have it, as we've mentioned in previous shows this week, then you're just going to be excluded from uh, the world economy. Uh, but when you do have it, then you, you can be included, and that's a big, big deal for the remaining populations that are being electrified here, and that's, that's a cool thing. It's hugely important to be part of the economy, to, yeah. uh, to, to get information, to exchange goods, to be able to perform financial transactions. Electricity is critical to all of these things. It's also really important to having light, to being able to clean water, just 
it, basically, it is the difference. It is the fundamental difference, I guess, between the developing and the developed world. If you're going to draw one line right. and say what's the difference, electricity is it, right? That's uh, it, that, that's kind of the starting, the starting line for that. And look at this: India has gone from 45% access in 1990 to nearly 80% in 2014. And Afghanistan, I said we'd come back to them, they went from 0.16% of the population in 2000 to 89.5% in 2014. Now, obviously, they were a war-torn country in the year 2000, but then come to think of it, they still pretty much are in the year 2014, right? So this right. this, and, this is all occurring I mean, during points, wartime. Yeah, I mean, not even 1%. We're talking 0.16%. Yeah, 0.16%, yeah of the population. So basically nobody had electricity in the year 2000. And folks, that isn't all that long ago. <laughs> no. That's just, you know, uh, the other day, really. Uh, yes. Um, and so, uh, and, and now that... It must have just been a very few people in Kabul who did. And, and yeah, that must have been uh, just about it. Very few, probably the ruling faction in Kabul had electricity. And that's it. Yeah. And that's it. So um, amazing, amazing story there. He goes on to say, around the world, solar prices are still dropping. And I hadn't heard about this, so this is worth mentioning. The U.S. Department of Energy announced in September that utility-scale solar has officially hit its 2020 cost targets three years early. So we know we've now got generation costs of $1 per watt and energy consumption costs of $0.06 cents per kilowatt hour. Pretty amazing. That, the, that's where we wanted to be by 2020, and we're already there. So yeah. we're moving right along. Now, our examples, we've already talked about basic power. And Brian Wong's plan to kind of finish this process, get the energy out to the remaining, what would it be, 20% of the folks in India who don't have power and the remaining 11% or 10.5% in Afghanistan and other parts of the world who need it, basically getting us to 100% energy on the cheap, the quick way. And, and the quick, cheap way is through solar, and it is off the grid. We also, I, I want to show... I want to recommend a show we did called Alternative Energy in the Future. This is interesting, Stephen. I found this one. This is actually a best of. This is a show from 11 years ago. And yet, hey, folks, give it a listen. We talked about a lot of really interesting ideas for alternative energy that still have some legs, believe it or not. Yep. So I think, um, yep. I think there's, there's a lot of good stuff there. Okay, moving on to food. Here we go. Globally, 18.6% of the population was undernourished in 1991. By 2015, it dropped to 10.8%. So that's real progress right there on a, on a percentage basis. Of course, the population has gone up, so the number of people in the world still hungry is probably about the same, isn't it, over that period of time, yeah. which is unfortunate. Yeah, the absolute number has remained the same, but keep in mind, populations have increased, and so... Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still encouraged, okay? I mean, maybe the absolute number has remained the same, but uh, the, the percentage has decreased. I think, uh, you know, before long we see, you know, as with the other, the, uh, um, uh, the absolute, you know, the absolute number, number will, will go down too. So that's, that's, you know, I'm encouraged. There, there are many reasons to believe that that will in fact happen. And we'll come to those in a minute. But, but first, we've got to stop off while we're going through Peter's examples of a couple of really cool technologies he referenced in his story. The first of those is human-free farms. And he talks about this fully automated farm using autonomous vehicles, machine learning algorithms, and drones to plant, tend, and harvest. Now, this, is just, this doesn't address world hunger, this is just a very interesting model for how agriculture might work in the future, as I see it, right? There's, there's no real particular benefit this provides 
to the well, hungry I, I, in, the, in the world. I, I disagree. I mean, it's okay. a continuation of the uh, uh, the indu- industrialization of farming that began, you know, 150 years ago, Phil, where when Malthus wrote his book, right, or, which was probably, I think that was the late 1700s. Uh, that was yeah. uh, about, the, about the time of the American Revolution. He wrote his book where he said, you know, uh, you know, the world's just going to starve off. And had things remained the same and populations continued to grow, uh, farmers couldn't have fed all the people that were going to, you know, be around. And he would have been right. But, of course, um, you know, uh, we started to industrialize everything, including farming. This is just an, an increase of that, Phil. And so as with the drones that are protecting our wild areas and things like this, it's scalable. If you need more food, you, do, you put more robots to work. You know, it's. I, I think it's. Uh, I think it's fantastic, and uh, and I think it will result in more food available, and perhaps even uh, uh, an ability to grow food in places that would have been marginal before. You know, maybe ah, well, a that's, farmer that's would... where we're getting. Now, that's the next one. Yeah. Okay. So you're okay. you're 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 extending so, over and you're extending over well, the next I, one. And I, I will. I think that this technology helps helps to get there. But yeah, go ahead with the next one. Yeah, the next one is food from electricity, and this was in Finland, a place you immediately think of when you think of perhaps a challenging place to grow crops. Researchers are creating food from electricity, a machine that runs on renewable energy to produce nutritious single-cell proteins. So the system is deployable in a variety of environments, hostile to traditional agriculture, and future iterations will be able to produce anywhere from famine-stricken deserts to space. So this technology I definitely see as helping the hungry as well as just being kind of a continuation of our mastery of agriculture. And you persuaded me on the first one too, Stephen. So absolutely. These are both, uh, especially when you see, when you see the two of them working together, I would just point out that I don't think that, that the fact that there's a billion people hungry in the world has much to do with the fact that there are no people to do the farming, right? That's not, that's not really the issue. That's fair. That's fair. But uh, I think that the, the fact that there will be robots farming helps those people though. I think, I think so too. Chance. I think so too. They're very efficient. Chance that the, they keep yeah. they keep doing it, and as you said, they can do it under. They expect no pay. They yep. expect no People return can. for their labor. They just work and work, and uh, that's. And they and, don't get uh, malaria. They don't get bitten by snakes. Yep, it's all true. Yep, and they don't uh, get tired of working. They just keep working, and uh, and the and the fruits of their labor can go to these people that need it. So, good stuff. And here's here's my final nail in the coffin for hunger. Our example, this is from a show last week, child and teen obesity rates soar globally, who reports, the World Health yeah. Organization reports. There it is right there, okay? The fed developed world is here. It just isn't evenly distributed yet, right? We've, yeah. we've got obesity as now a major problem in the developing world, which means that some of those who didn't have any food at all or didn't have nearly enough food a few years ago now have too much. So there's more than enough. Well, they have the wrong kind of food. It, it's a... Uh, they're still nutritionally challenged because they're not getting the right kinds of food, uh, but they're, uh, they're getting food. All I'm saying is some people who used to not have any food are now fat. So uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I to think to, to uh, me, that indicates that there's probably going to be enough food for everybody in the, in the very near future. And now, finally, we got one that doesn't actually fit into any of these categories. So step us through this one, Stephen, uh, in-memory computing architecture. Okay, so uh, this, was, this was sort of neat. This was from this week. IBM scientists say radical new in-memory computing architecture will speed up computers by 200 times. Now, I mean, pretty much any computer you put your hands on in your entire life, Phil, uh, 
has a run with the von Neumann architecture, okay, mm-hmm. where mem- you know, uh, computation occurs over here and memory is a different process that occurs over here. Um, that's, that's not what's happening with this new architecture that IBM is developing. Uh, it all takes place in one, in, in one process. And it's, you know, it's, it's extremely uh, energy efficient. Uh, uh, it's massively parallel. And, uh, you know, and, and it's optimized for, uh, for artificial intelligence. So in some ways, it's, it, uh, it mimics, in a way, the human brain because, uh, you know, we don't have our memory and our computation taking place separately. It's all in the same neurons. Right. And, uh, and it's massively parallel. And so basically we got, we got uh, IBM announcing that uh, they, they've got this new architecture that's going to be, it's going to be big for AI. And uh, I, I, fi- I find that fascinating. And it, since I think it's an empowering technology for all the rest of this. When you have computation that's readily available, cheap, efficient, it, uh, it empowers all of this. It's, uh, it's like pouring back into the system that's uh, – you know, giving us all this great stuff, you know. So um, I, I, I thought that it, it fit right in to our, to our I, I, this abundance. This is fascinating. I want, to, I want to read more about this. The 200 times is awesome. If, if they're saying 200 times over accessing disk, then obviously that's great, and it should, it should do that. If they're saying 200 times over what we're currently seeing and what's currently called in-memory systems, then that's a huge jump, okay, because the yeah. in-memory systems that we currently have which I presume are using a somewhat different architecture than, than this new one. I think about things like SAP HANA, this totally in-memory database, where so the application and the database that's all in-memory all the time, theoretically. A lot of times there's still part of it sitting on disk anyway just to, just to save money. But, but when, when an in-memory system is deployed, you've suddenly got this idea where you can access any of your data instantaneously, right? That you go from sometimes minutes to milliseconds to getting the data. Now, if they're, if they're going 200 times faster than those millisecond access times, that's going to be, that's going to be very speedy indeed and uh, pretty, pretty exciting stuff. I, I wonder yeah. if, the, if the current in-memory systems are considered to still be following that von Neumann architecture because you've got a CPU, and then although you don't have disk, you've got like solid-state memory, and yes. that's considered you know, sort of acting as the, as the disk, even though you're accessing it a lot faster. I wonder if that's what the distinction is. Yeah, basically any computer that, uh, you, you know, we touch in our daily lives, Bill, including our phones, you know, uh, desktop computer, your laptop, it, it all, you know, your, your iPad. Um, all, of these, all of these things, uh, you know, have a separation of the computation with the memory, with the memory and it, right. they follow every one of them the von Neumann architecture. That's uh, how prevalent that, I mean, that, that architecture has been it for, since the dawn of, uh, of computing. And, and now we're looking at, at, at a, a complete revamping that looks a whole lot like the human brain. Um, and that's, that's exciting and it's interesting. And, um, um, and here, we're right at the end, of, uh, of, of apparently, of Moore's Law, and uh, then we hear about things like this. So, you know, even, even if uh, we can't make, uh, uh, you know, our, our circuits any smaller, we figure out other ways. And uh, this, is, this is one of the ways, I think. 
potentially one one good way of doing it. Well, I'm going to check on that, right. and we're, we'll revisit this down the road because I'm interested in in what how this is distinct from existing in-memory systems, especially if it's 200 times faster than existing in-memory systems. Then we're talking about a real leap forward. Okay, it's time to geek out, and I've got something I want to tell you, Stephen. I was at Disneyland earlier this week, and as you know, I was at Walt Disney World two weeks ago, so I'm, I'm, I'm making it to <laughs> Disney about every other week right now. It's kind of my... Uh, <laughs> uh, next week, uh, you got Euro Disney on tap. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My Lyft driver told, said that very thing to me yesterday. He said, so you going to Paris? And uh, I'm like, no, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going uh, to keep this going. I'll probably let that be my most Disney period, probably in my whole life, actually, was last week and, <laughs> and, and this week. But I, just, I happened to be in an event in Anaheim, and we had an evening event at the event and it was at Disneyland and I took in a movie in Tomorrowland called Star Wars The Path of the Jedi and this is very cool this is a 10 minute compilation of footage from the all the existing Star Wars movies with voiceovers just talking about first the story the story of Star Wars but also what it means to be a Jedi and what a Jedi goes through and it shows Luke a lot of Luke a little bit of Anakin a lot of Vader, a lot of the old movies, a few scenes from the prequels, and more scenes from the more recent movies. So it was, it was mostly the old movies and the more recent movies. A little bit of the prequels dusted in there, just enough to kind of, to to kind of keep it fun. But w- what was interesting about this was, uh, I was walking around there with a colleague who's a real Disney aficionado, and he told me that this theater that we were in is actually the one that used to show the old Michael Jackson 3D movie called Captain EO, which was really big, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, a big Disney attraction. It was a 3D movie with all these special light and sound effects that went with it. It sort of anticipated things like Star Tours, which is more of a moving Star Wars experience. And although it was not directly connected to Star Wars, this this actually was. So you're sitting here in the theater and you're watching this movie, but whenever there's a laser blast or something like that, there's also like a light blasting right in your face or the room rumbles a little bit. Or there's (laughs) when you're moving through space, there's a fan right in front of your face that's blowing air in your face and you feel yourself moving. So it was was just a a very cool kind of uh, experience in, in sort of a retro, immersive virtual reality scenario you know not not truly immersive vr but like an early attempt from a from a bygone era and it was kind of it was kind of cool to see how they how they incorporated a new attraction using this kind of passe technology in this big this big theater anyway the movie was really cool and (laughs) it it adds up to pretty much a trailer for episode eight is basically where where that was going it's 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 all just it all kind of ends with and then what happened right you know because it it kind of kind of ends with the last scene of episode seven and here we go we're ready we're ready for ready for episode eight now but one of the things i noticed about it was as far as i could tell all the scenes from the original trilogy were unenhanced unspecial edition scenes and it could be oh, that okay. it could be that those were just the scenes they happened to use that weren't didn't have anything particular going on, or that could have actually been a choice, or I might have just missed it. There might have been there might have been enhanced stuff going on there, but it didn't look like it. It looked like those were all just the original scenes, and they looked fine. I mean, you know, they've been digitally enhanced, and everything looks fantastic. And I wonder if we're not going to see a return of the original movies without all the additions now that 
George Lucas is no longer running the ship. Because I got to tell you, I watched Return of the Jedi with my kids for the first time last Saturday. We sat down, we watched that together, and they already know the story by heart because we've read books and they've got this like audio book they listen to all the time. And it's like they're shouting dialogue out at the movie while it's while it's happening and stuff. <laughs> but anyway, it was really fun. Had a, had a really great time. And I don't know, have you seen Return of the Jedi since 2011? Um, huh. Uh, Do you know yeah, the horrible sure, thing I'm talking sure. about? You have seen it. Yeah, uh, you're talking about the, uh, the scene at the end? I'm talking scene? about the fact that Darth Vader grabs the Emperor and throws him into the reactor and goes, No! As he's doing yeah, that, right? yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, I have seen that. I was so appalled by that. I was like, I'm sorry, kids. I'm sorry. That's not really what happens in the movie. You know, it's just like, the, I wish I could give you the real movie. You know, I'm sorry you had to see that. Because, of course, I see that, and you can't hear that no without it flashing back to that ridiculous scene at the end of Revenge of the Sith. And yeah. I, I, I've just, you know, since Disney's going to own all this now, just clean them up, right? I mean, you want to you want to leave a few visual effects here and there, fine. But I mean, the remember the mighty Sarlacc, the the desert worm that uh, that B- Boba Fett finally falls into. Right, right. How it, it was fine in the original movie. He turned it into that feed me Seymour creature from Little Shop of Horrors. You know what the hell? I, there was yeah, there was no reason for that. It looked exactly hey, yeah. like it. Yeah, I expected him to say to it. Here's what you need to do. I, here's what I did, and uh, and and I'm going to prove my geek cred right now, Phil. Okay. Here's what I did. Here's what I did for my family. I went out and 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 bought. And it was actually, I found it in a pawn shop and said, hmm, I bought a laser disc player uh, about nine months ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the old laser disc player. What did that set you back, Stephen? May I ask? Oh, it was, uh, I don't know, 50 bucks. It was not yeah, much. Okay. okay. And then I went out on uh, eBay and got the original laser disc set of the original trilogy. Right. Okay. So this is like, uh, you know, this is like early 90s, okay? This is before the special editions, and uh, we sat there and watched the entire trilogy in its original glory oh, uh, earlier this year. So, you know, no, 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 uh, you know, uh, no Hayden Christensen at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh, that was wrong. Yeah, the, the, my kids were like, who's this? What's that guy? Yeah. You know, I'm like, well, <laughs> let me explain that to you if I can, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was, and you know, Han shooting first. I mean, that's you know, and uh, and and uh, and no ridiculous uh, scene with uh, with Jabba with a CGI Jabba where he steps on his tail. You know, no, oh, right, right. Yeah, so it's it, it, it's just it's a cleaner experience watching him. Yeah, at, well, I have those. I have them on, actually on on DVD. There was a DVD release a while back, and it was the special editions as they existed then. This is probably 15 years ago on yeah. one side and the original movies on the other side, but they're kind of heavily really? letterboxed. So you don't see the whole thing. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, they're, it, the whole picture is there, but it's like shrunk down on your screen and I can't make it like take up the whole TV screen. So the, I do have them and we watched the original star Wars that way, but I, I just thought, well, this was so nice. It was already on, on demand. We could just watch it. And I, 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 I regret doing it that way. I must say that, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it is okay. Uh, you're, I, I'm sure your kids will grow up and be productive anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope I hope I haven't scarred them for life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I suspect they're going to be just fine. <laughs> that's my big fear. Uh, this has been a great series of shows. A good good trilogy of shows. And uh, thanks to uh, Peter Diamantis and his. Uh, yeah. Keep cranking uh, them out, Peter, and we'll keep doing shows about them. That's what we're here for. Is to, uh, <laughs> exactly. Is to you know slightly embellish things that other futurists come up with. No, we got our own stuff, too. We, we, we do it all. We cover it all. And speaking of which, we're going to be back next week with three brand new shows talking about the future. Look forward to that. Stephen, look forward to being with you all. And until next time, live to see it. <laughs>